Well, Palm Sunday, we're going to take a break in our study of Mark. Now, we've mentioned, how many were here when we did the study in Revelation? The book of Revelation tells us that there's a time that's coming. It's going to make a complete upheaval in the world and a complete judgment of the world. Now, what does that have to do with today and next week? Well, this week, Holy Week, which culminates in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, and ultimately our faith and belief and acceptance of that is the sole event that will determine where you're going to be at that time. What each one of us decide about Jesus today or in the past or in the future and his resurrection will determine which judgment seat you're going to stand at and are you going to be here and where you're going to be after we die. Now, we said it before that Resurrection Day or Easter is the single most significant day in human history, bar none. Now, it's kind of a big statement. But if you read your Bible, that's true. You look at history, it's true. Now, we're going to see what happened this day, Palm Sunday, and what it means to the believer. Now, what does it mean? What happened 2,000 years ago? How does it affect me? Why does it affect me? Well, the last week of Jesus' life on earth is spelled out in detail throughout the Gospels. And today we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Now, how, would, how many of you would like to know that this is the last week of your life? Or how many would want to be surprised when it happened? I'm not sure how I'd, if I would know, if I'd want to know. I think I'd want to know to prepare. But then I'd have to be afraid the whole week or worry about the whole week. I'm not sure. But Jesus knew what was coming. Well, he knew for 33 years he knew what was coming. But we call it Palm Sunday because of John chapter 12. It says, the next day the great crowd that he had come for the feast, that had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. We call it Palm Sunday. as the day that signifies Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The beginning of Jesus wanting to have public recognition. And you know, we've mentioned before in the, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus didn't want anybody to know what, we's, what he was doing. He wanted to keep it on the down low. He just didn't want the crowds to know what he was doing. And even though he would tell people, look, don't tell anybody. Don't say this. Don't mention it. Because he didn't want the attention that that was going to draw both from the Jews and the Romans. So he kind of wanted to keep it on the, on, the, on the low key. But now he's saying, okay, all bets are off. Now I'm going to show you who exactly I am. And we're going to see what ha transpires during the week. It starts with a celebration and ends with a crucifixion. So if you study your Bible, you're going to, if you go through all of them, you kind of put a timeline together. These are the things that happened during this week. Sunday was the triumphal entry, and Sunday is also the day that we see him crying over Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Monday is the day that he curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. In other words, he's tossing over the tables and yelling at the money changers. Tuesday, he sees the withered fig tree that he cursed, and he confronts the Jewish leaders, and he goes to the Mount of Olives on Tuesday. Wednesday, the Bible has nothing on record of what he did anything on Wednesday. Thursday, he is preparing for the Passover. Friday is the Passover. It's also the trial, the crucifixion, the death, and burial. It's on Friday. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. And Sunday, as we know, is Resurrection Day. Jesus is raised from the dead. This is one of the events that's recorded in all the Gospels. So we're going to be pulling texts from each one 
so we can get a complete account of what happened. Now, I'm going to read a chronological account of the triumphal entry with Bible verses so we can get a whole picture at one time. This is the timeline of what happened. Matthew 21, verse 1 says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them here. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately send them. This was done to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which says, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even a colt's donkey. So that's the first prophecy fulfilled in the Old Testament. Matthew 21, verse 6 goes on and says, The two disciples did as Jesus said. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked him, Why are you untying our colt? And the disciples simply replied, The Lord needs it. They brought the animals to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road ahead of Jesus, and others cut branches from trees and spread them out on the road. He was in the center of the procession, and the crowds all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. That's from Psalm 118. Now Luke's gospel goes on and says, As they reached the place where the road started down from the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Bless the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Hail to the king of Israel. That's found in John 12. Luke 19 goes on and says, But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Going back to Matthew 21, The entire city of Jerusalem was stirred as they entered. Who is this, they asked. As the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Going to Luke. But as they came closer to Jerusalem and Jesus saw the city ahead, he began to cry. I wish that even today you would find the way of peace. And jumping back to John chapter 12, those in the crowd who had seen Jesus call Lazarus back to life were telling others all about it. This was the main reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this mighty miracle. Then the Pharisees said to each other, look, we've lost the whole crowd, the whole world has gone after him. So that's the order of events that's happening on this particular day. Now, up to this point, prior to this, Jesus had just had dinner with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. In John chapter 12, you see, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they were back celebrating. I'm sure they're having a party at their house because he's now alive. And it's the raising of Lazarus that started the Jewish leader's plot to kill him. That was what triggered it. Now, I don't get that. They see someone raised from the dead, and their first thought is to kill him? I kind of would want to be hanging around this guy. But nope, they wanted to kill him. And John 11:45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And John chapter eleven fifty five says, from, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
Notice that people had witnessed physically and seen Jesus raise him from the dead. And not everybody believed in Jesus. Now, that tells me miracles don't save anybody. Because they saw someone raised from the dead and yet they didn't believe. Miracles in and of themselves do not cause people to believe. Some will, but if you're waiting to see a miracle before you trust Jesus, you're not going to believe it even if you see it. I saw a clip the other day. Uh, a lady who was in a wheelchair for 20 years was at one of our churches in uh, D.C., I think James River Church. And I usually am skeptical of these kind of healings. You know, I'm just like, okay, wait. Well, this lady and his doctors and everybody have said, you know, in a wheelchair. And she actually quit going to healing services because she didn't want to go. Well, she goes to this healing service and they prayed for her and she started walking. And I mean, she was walking like a, a baby would walk and it was because she had her, obviously her muscles were atrophied and stuff, but but she started to walk, and over time, through therapy, she's now walking. And I heard someone say, when you see miracles, I want to see the receipts. You know, I want to see, if God does a miracle, it should be verifiable. Well, this one was verifiable. Verifiable. And I was excited to see that, but I'm watching that and going, how many people are going to see this and yet not believe it? If you're waiting to see a miracle... Even the, even the Pharisees would say, hey, well, show us something. Show us a miracle so we can believe in you. Well, they saw a miracle, and they still didn't believe. So if you think you're waiting for a miracle, it's not going to happen. That's not going to change your mind. Matthew twelve thirty eight says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How many know what the sign of the prophet Jonah is? Where was Jonah for three days? In the fish. That's your sign. Jesus spends three days in the grave, and he rises again. Jonah spent three days in the fish, underwater. Some scholars think he was dead. Some think he was not dead. In either case, he was as good as dead. God spit him back up on land. He's alive. That's your sign. Three days in the grave, dead, he's going to resurrect. And if you don't believe that, nothing more is going to be given to you. No more miracles are going to be there to show you that Jesus is who he said he was. So let's look at this day, verse by verse, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her untie them and bring them to me now Jesus knew how the week was going to go he had already planned out for it he had to make arrangements in advance to have this donkey ready for him in his colt the Bible tells us that word was out that anyone who knew about Jesus was required to turn him in and then anyone who confessed Christ would be excommunicated John eleven fifty seven 57 tells us that Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly announced that anyone seeing Jesus must report him immediately so they can arrest him. So Jesus didn't want this guy to get in trouble. 
So he goes to them on the down low and has this donkey ready for him because that's what he tells his disciples, tell them I sent you. So he knows it's ready. Now, today we think of a donkey as a lowly creature, right? Nobody rides a donkey, everybody rides a horse. Well, in Bible times, donkey was used for royalty. First Kings 144, it says, the king had sent him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, and they had him put on the king's mule. So that was his thing. That was the king's mule and donkey. I know they're different. I'm not a farmer, but I think I know they're different. Judges 5.10 says, you who ride on fine donkeys and sit on fancy saddle blankets. So donkeys were used by royalty back then. And donkeys also symbolized peace, whereas horses in the Bible symbolized war. The horses of color in Revelation 12, you got the 12 horsemen of the apocalypse. Horses represent war, donkeys represent peace. And Jesus is riding on a symbol of peace and royalty. And now, obviously word's getting out that he's coming because the town's all ready for him. And he heads towards town. John 12, 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And again, we said this is the only time that Jesus allowed any public displays of attention to be paid to him. So verse 13 goes on and says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Why would he, why would he do that now? Well, now he's beginning to fill fulfill other prophecies. He was fulfilling the prophecy written about him in Zechariah that we read earlier. And Matthew repeats what Zechariah had said, Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now if you remember when we started talking about Mark, Mark was written to Roman Gentiles. Matthew was written to Jews. So there's a whole bunch of Old Testament references in Matthew so the Jews would understand what he was saying. That's why Matthew quotes Zechariah. Now, how many of you, anybody here have a donkey or a mule? You ever try to ride a donkey? That's never been ridden before? Now, a friend of mine back home used to raise and, and train horses for racing. And he'll tell you it's almost impossible just to jump on one and ride it that's not been broken. Another friend who used horses for barrel racing. And both would tell you the same thing. You just can't just jump on a horse cold or a donkey or a mule and expect to have them not kick you off. When I was a kid, we used to go visit friends of ours who lived up in Kane, PA. And they had, they had a couple of horses. And my brother and I would read. They didn't race them. They just had a, a stall and a track that went around the stall. And so my brother and I would try to ride them and they, they didn't want, you know, they weren't great. They, they would go for a little bit and stop and go for a little bit and stop. And finally I got one on a gallop. I'm like, this is awesome. And we're coming around the corner and the stall's here and the horse went, and I went, because they're not, they weren't crazy about having me on their back. But the donkey, Jesus' donkey was perfectly calm and allowed Jesus to ride him no problem. No bucking, no bending down, no getting on the ground. Jesus had power. We talked about nature, demons, 
And now he has power over animals, as well as the waves we talked about last week. Matthew 8, 27, talking about the waves, the men were amazed and says, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. So as Jesus is walking through town, who's there to greet him? Matthew 21 says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this crowd, and we've mentioned this before, is, is three different groups that make up this one crowd. The first group is the Passover visitors from outside Judea. John 12, 12 says this, the next day the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A huge crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the first group. The second group was local people who lived there who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus. The first group hadn't witnessed that, this group had. John 12, 17 says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So I mentioned before, miracles don't save anybody. But they do provide an incentive for people to come. What's God doing in that church? I want to go to see what God's doing. And it might not necessarily be a, a healing. But let me tell you the most powerful testimony you can have. Which, by the way, we're going to start picking on people to give testimonies. And everybody's got one, by the way. The most powerful testimony you have is when you came to Christ. Bar none. Look at where you were compared to where you are. That is a miracle. And that is a verifiable, bona fide miracle. And when you give your testimony to that effect, people want to know what happened. And it gives you the opportunity to say, just like the guy who was blind. Jesus healed him. The Pharisees called him in and said, hey, what happened? How'd you, how did Jesus do that? And he says, look, man, all I know is I was blind, now I see, period. That's my testimony. All you tell people is what God did for you. Hey, look, I was this way, now I'm this way, end of story. When we pray for miracles, when we believe that the Holy Spirit works in our church, and we still believe that God does them, and we know that God answers prayer, but there are also, all these things are designed to let people know that there is a God who does things in your life. What's God doing in that church? I want to see. Third group was the religious leaders who sought to kill Jesus. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. So you have these three groups intermixed. Some praising him, some there for the miracles, and some want to kill him. So him, by him riding a donkey in the processional, he's having people lay their coats in front of him. He's doing what a king would have done. So he's making no, no doubt about who he is claiming to be. He's announcing to this group, I'm a king. And all three groups had different responses to that announcement. I used to think that this whole crowd was the same crowd that shouted Hosanna, it's the same crowd that shouted crucify him, but it's not. These crowds had different responses to that. The Galilean Jews, they were the ones who supported and followed him. They're the ones who laid the branches down for him, and they were the ones shouting Hosanna. They were the committed followers. The second group was the Judean and Jerusalem Jews, and these were the ones who would later shout crucify him. They, brought him, they, they thought as a king, 
he would overthrow the Roman government. They were here like, okay, great, he's a king, let's get the battle, let's start fighting, and we're gonna overthrow this government. And when he didn't do that, they turned away. And these are the ones, when God doesn't do the things the way you think you should, is when you leave. Think about that. We all have ideas in our mind of what we think God should do, would do, could do. And when he doesn't do them exactly how we want, do we stick around? Or do we say, well, he's not going to do it my way, I might as well go someplace else. That's exactly what happened here. We see so much evil in the world and you want God to just rain fire down sometimes, right? <laughs> but it doesn't happen. I read an article Gil sent me. What is our response to that kind of evil? What's the Bible say? Pick up your swords and your guns and start. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for your enemies. Now it says we have to acknowledge that there is evil and we hate the evil, but we pray for the people that are being influenced by the evil. So we don't want, you know, we don't go around, you know, whipping out and going after them. That's up to God to do that. Our response is to pray. The last response was from the Jewish leaders who saw their power base eroding. In other words, if he's the king, they're going to follow him and not going to follow us. So we've got to get rid of him. He's going to take our place. He's going to take our power. He's going to take our, our wealth, resources, all that kind of stuff. They're going to all follow him and leave us in the dust. So we've got to get rid of him. Luke 19.39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you the truth, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Verse 19 says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now they're saying the whole world, but we know it wasn't the whole world. It was a third of the group. The Jewish leaders knew that their power and authority was going to be challenged, if not stripped from them. And they needed to eliminate the opposition. And all this was happening, people still didn't understand what was going to happen. And they didn't understand it was supposed to happen this way. John 12, 16 says, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had to be done, or these things had to be done to him. If you read your Old Testament, you know this is what happens. <laughs> I read the Old Testament, or I'll, I'll see a movie or whatever, and you, you hope that the movie has a different outcome from the last time you saw the movie. <laughs> or you read something, you read maybe about Samuel, Come on, Samuel, don't, don't, don't mess up. You know you're going to mess up. You want it to be different. Or when David, David sees Bathsheba, you just pray, oh, Lord, let him not do that again. But you know it happens, and you can't change it. The Old Testament is written, and you can't change what God was going to do. And I'm sure these guys thought, well, maybe we can do it better. It doesn't have to happen this way. And the Bible says they didn't understand that it did have to happen this way until after he was glorified. Now, this tells us that this account was written well after the actual event. John says, basically, we had no clue what was going on at that time, but now, later on, years after, we, now we get it. Now we understand. When you come to be a Christian, as I said before, the light bulb goes off and you get it. 
but you don't know anything about the Bible yet. And as you read the Bible, you become more informed, and now you begin to understand things. Even though you were, you were transformed, your life was changed at the moment of salvation, now you begin to grow in your faith. These guys were saved. They didn't really know anything. And as they studied and grew in their faith, they realized, okay, I get it. I see why this had to happen. And time has passed for them, and as they saw the unfolding of the resurrection, they kind of, they, okay, I, now I get it. Now, as an unbeliever, I didn't understand everything that happened in the church or in other unbelievers' lives, other believers' lives. But once I got saved, I, I understood it. I got it. Now, I want to focus on the next event for a little bit. We all know the parade in the time, but we do miss some of the other things. John doesn't record this, but the other two gospels do. Mark 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. So he walks up to the temple. He spends some time looking at it, and he's thinking. You ever just stop and take time to think about something? When your kids are sleeping in bed, and you open the door and you look at them sleeping. Pretty cool, right? Not creepy, but cool. You look at them, you pray for them, and you imagine in your life what they're going to be like as adults when they're little. You think how much you enjoy them now and that one day they're going to be grown and gone. I kind of think that's what Jesus was doing. Because if you look at Luke's at kind of the same event, Luke 19.41 says, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Why? Why was he crying? Well, the Bible tells us. It's empty. And he says in Luke 19, 42, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an encampment or embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus knew the city. He knew the people. And he loved them. But he knew what was going to happen to them because they rejected him. Think, I was thinking about this as we were worshiping. Imagine you have an adult child who maybe is controlled by substances, we'll say. And you know, you look at them and you know what it will take to change their life and you tell them and you tell them and you tell them and they don't change. They keep drinking or they keep doing the drugs and they keep doing it and you know what's going to eventually happen to them if they keep on this path. And what do you do? You cry, nothing you can do. You offer them every help you can and yet they reject it. And you know what the eventual outcome is going to be. Jesus is looking at the city and he knows what the outcome is going to be because he's offered them the one way out that this doesn't have to happen to you. But he's crying because he knows that they've already rejected him. And it's only the second time the Bible records him crying. The first time was with Lazarus. And everywhere he looked in Jerusalem, he had a reason to cry because when he looked back, he saw all the wasted chances that the Jews had for blessing. You ever look back in your life and think you wasted some time? Wish we'd have done something different? Wish you could have a do-over? 
Now, we talked about that Wednesday. You don't want a do-over because where you are now would be different if you had a do-over. But God had given them so many chances and they ignored almost every one of them. God gives everyone here a chance. We don't want to waste it and look back on it later and regret it. So we look back. Now he's looking at the present. And he cried because he saw the hardness of the people's hearts at this moment. He'd done, he had done all these miracles. And John tells us, if he, you couldn't write down in all the volumes of the world all the miracles he did. That's what John says. He did all these things in front of people. And yet people didn't believe him. There was a whole lot of religious activity going on, but not any spiritual change or spiritual growth. You look around today, there's a lot of churches and a lot of religious activity going on around us. But is it ever, is it accomplishing anything for eternity? It's great to do things for the community. It's great to do all these things, but if we don't ultimately show them Jesus, all those things don't matter in the end. We know people that no matter how many times God has done great things in their life, and yet they still don't believe. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As Christians, it makes you cry because you know what they're missing now. And you know what judgment is coming. Going back to our study in Revelation, we're seeing what will happen all the friends and family that we are praying for. We know what will happen if they don't believe and what it does, it makes us sad and cry over people. And I ask the question, how many of us have really cried about the state of the people we know? What about the state of the world? The government, no, they need help. Currency, they need help. State of our leaders, Everybody needs help. The state of, quote, religion or the military. It scares me to death for those who are going to be here during that time. Because if you were here for that study in Revelation, it is going to be horrific. Horrific. Do we have the heart of Jesus when it comes to eternity? These very people who were the ones later shouted crucify him, and yet he cared about them to the point he was crying over them. Lord, please do in their life. I know they're going to crucify me, but Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. The good, the good news is the story doesn't end with the suffering and crucifixion. Jesus took the punishment and suffering so that we didn't have to. And we were all in the same boat as the people Jesus was crying over. We were all destined for the same hell as these people were he was crying over. Because Jesus said in that verse, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And I love the New Living Translation version of it. It says, because you've rejected the opportunity that God offered you. Wow. I sat in church for three years, rejected that opportunity every Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday night. Three years. Church didn't change me. Church isn't, this church isn't going to change you. It'll show you what to do to be changed. Church isn't the one offering the opportunity. God is the one offering the opportunity. This church will tell you about God's offer, but it's God's offer. It's not mine. 
God's offer. It's up to you to accept it or reject it. But for us believers, not by the grace of God, we didn't reject the opportunity. We accepted it. And after three years of sitting in that church getting beat up by the gospel, I accepted it. And at that point, it changed my life. Hallelujah. Palm Sunday and the Easter is all about accepting God's offer. You boil it down to one sentence, that's it. What's the offer? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves you so much that he sent and allowed his son to die in your place, my place. If you've not believed that or received that offer from God, then Jesus is still crying over you. How often do parents cry over your kids' choices, even as adults? You know that by their choices, they're going to wind up in trouble. And you don't want them to face what you know will eventually come their way if they keep on the same path. God does not want any of us to suffer. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He offers each one of us eternal life. Now, everybody lives forever. We all live forever. It's just where we choose to live forever. Eternal life is means heaven. Eternal death is not. The question is, do you believe? Not in our heads. Because we all believe, you know, to a point. We all know Jesus existed. Do you believe to the point where your lives have been changed by that belief? The Jews who would shout crucify him believed it in their heads. They knew who Jesus was. They saw him for three years or 30 years, depending on how much they knew him. But they didn't get changed. The difference is it moves from here to here. Well, you actually have to believe in your heart. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you're saved. But you have to believe in here. You have to believe that you are a sinner and you need to be saved. That you have sin in your life that God needs to wipe out. And the Bible says that when he does that, he wipes it clean. All your past gone. History. And the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are now in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're saved. Everything in your past, God chooses to forget. God, amen. And you look back in your life and you look at all the things, man, all the things you did that were horrible, bad. You didn't kill anybody, but you're just a jerk as a person. And you did stupid things, bad things that hurt people. And God transformed me and God forgave all of that. Hallelujah. Would you stand as we close this morning? The last sentence I wrote on here is, let God transform you today. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? Statistics tell us that, obviously, things we know, Christmas and Easter are times when churches are full. And that's a good thing. But if that's the only time that they're full, then we're missing something. Because the Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that just doesn't mean twice a year. 
That means every time that we are able to, we should gather together as a group of believers to not only worship God, but allow God to work in us. But maybe you're here and you've never really accepted Christ. You've, you've heard about it maybe all your life. Or you sat in church all your life. Or like me, you sat in church for three years and everything bounced off you. But now you really want to know. You, you know that there's something else out there. You know that the Bible says that we know we're sinners. But do we understand that we need forgiveness for that? The Bible says the wage of the sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And it comes to the, down to the point where you have to believe that in your heart to receive it. I'm not going to debate you into it. I'm not going to teach you into it. You have to come to the point where you believe it. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Without faith it's impossible to believe God or trust God because you have to believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So it takes faith to trust God. You're taking that step of faith. You have no idea what, the, what it's going to mean, but you really want to know Jesus. You want to know that your life is right with God so that when this life is over, that you are assured of where you're going to go. And not only that, that God gives you peace and blessing right now. So if that's you, you're here because God wanted you to be here. And if you're thinking about God, the Bible says it's because God's making you think about God. He's drawing you in. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. So if you're thinking about him, it's God making you think about him. And he's doing that because he wants you to make a choice. And the choice you have to make today is do you believe in Jesus or not? Do you want Jesus to forgive you of your sins or not? Jesus was crying over the people because they, they had the option and they chose not to. But the ones that were around him, the 12 and the 120 that were in the upper room, they chose to believe. And they were blessed because of it. So if you're here and you never accepted Christ, but you want to you start that path right now, you want to start that journey, you have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring, but you want to start the journey, I want you to raise your hand because that's why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here and you're, uh, you haven't been in church for a while and you want to get back to it. You want to really, okay, this is Easter. I'm going to start digging in. I'm going to start serving God now. I'm going to get back into it. Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit helps you to do that. So if that's you, I'm going to pray with you that the Holy Spirit continues to help you to do that. Because once you leave here, all the feeling and emotion that you had at this particular moment is going to be gone but the Holy Spirit's gonna be there to wake you up to pray or it's gonna be there to help you to resist temptation or to do what God needs you to do. Holy Spirit's gonna help you do that. The emotion that you feel now is gonna be gone, but the Spirit of God is gonna be there all the time. So if you wanna rededicate, you wanna make this the day, that, okay, this is, this is Palm Sunday, Easter week. Okay, Lord, I wanna get right. I wanna, I wanna make this journey. I'm gonna do it the right way. I'm gonna keep going. I'm not gonna... Forget the past, I'm gonna move forward. Paul says, pressing on, forgetting what's behind, I move forward. And you wanna press forward and you wanna move on. I want you to raise your hand because we're gonna pray for you.
for the rest of us as we celebrate this week. Help us to keep in our mind everything that Jesus did for us. And we're not doing things to repay him for that. We want to live our life to show him that we appreciate all he's done for us. When we send someone a thank you card, you've already gotten the gift. The thank you card is just to acknowledge that you got it and you're thankful for it. Our life is like a thank you card. We've already gotten the gift. We've been saved. We have our sins forgiven. We want our life to be a reflection of that gratitude. You're not earning your way into the kingdom. You're not getting brownie points. You're just showing God that you appreciate what he's done for you by the way you live. So Father, we do lay ourselves before you this morning. And we pray that you would continue daily, as your word tells us, to continue to be filled with your spirit. That your spirit controls our thought life. Your spirit controls our conscience. So that all that we do is just to show you that we love and appreciate you. Forgive us the times that we blow it. Forgive us the times that we sin and we, and we miss the mark. And we're thankful that you do forgive us. And then, Lord, help us to continue to move on. We don't stay where we are. We confess our sins, and as Paul said, you press on. Don't let that sin drag you down. You've already forgiven us. Help us to move on and continue to conquer things in our life to bring you honor and glory. So, Father, I commit each person to you today. Use them. And allow them to experience the power of God, a tangible power of God in their life. Things that they can look at and say, this had to be God working in me. Because in and of myself, I couldn't do it. So Lord, allow each one here, beginning with me, to experience that on a daily basis. And allow people to see in us what you're doing. And allow us to be no different outside the church than we are in the church. And allow people to know that. So Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Okay, egg hunt. I know the kids are probably chomping. I'm sorry I kept you a little bit late. They got about 600 and some eggs they got to gather.